Welcome to The People's Show with Bick Nazar and Randeep Janda. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to The People's Show. Vic Nazar, Randeep Janda, Dominic Shamati running the show. And of course, you, the people, coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. From the secondary studio. Still the Kintech studio, but uh, we're broadcasting in a different spot today in the Rogers Radio building, Randy. I got to say, your voice sounds much crisper here as well. We're in, we're in the, this is the podcast studio, so this, yeah. is, uh, this is a nice spot for us. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. We're doing some uh, renovations in the main studio. We'll be back there soon enough, and uh, the people that are here, if you're trying to find the stream right now, you're mm-hmm. like, hey, where's Bick and Randy? Uh, we're not in that spot right now. Yeah, we didn't have our makeup today, so uh, <laughs> we decided to take the studio instead. Hey, you've been getting makeup this whole time? Come on, man. I'm a TV guy. I got to roll with my makeup. <laughs> uh, you can always chime in. Always appreciate when you do as well into the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. 650-650, the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Thanks for making us part of your day on the pod, on the stream, live, however you are uh, checking us out. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, so getting ready, 11 days away from things get real for the Vancouver Canucks. Taking a look across the NHL, there was a transaction today, Randeep. A lot of people wondering, hey, is this something the Canucks should re-explore, entertain? Once the market gets settled, is there a double back, uh, the, the classic circle back season? Yeah. there was ever a time to do it. Is this it? Well, the Vancouver Canucks can no longer uh, bring in someone like Tyler Mott because he has landed elsewhere going to Ottawa. Like 20% of the league, he's going to Ottawa, basically. It seems like the transactions <laughs> this offseason. And with Tyler Mott, what a weird journey for Tyler Mott and the Canucks organization in the sense that remember when he was traded for in the Thomas Vanek deal, people were saying, how dare you get so much for this player? Thomas Vanek so is... So little. Or, yeah, yeah, so little. And you should have got so much more. But now at the end of it, and I, there's no outrage in Vancouver. Let's let's be clear about that. But the fact that people were circling back and saying, is this an option on a fourth line? Well, well there's no outrage, but I, I was surprised at the amount of texts mm-hmm. we got from Canucks fans and listeners to the show and the station at the start of free agency, July 13th, and even throughout the course of the summer. Hey, how come they haven't explored Tyler Mott again? How come they haven't doing this? Yeah. And you sit here and you say, well, look, they've spent their fourth line capital there's Curtis Lazar, there's Dakota Joshua, Jason Dickinson still exists. Yep. There's a role that he's going to have to fill in as he goes lower and lower down the depth chart. There just wasn't a lot of room, but nonstop. And I, I understand the idea of, hey, bring in depth. He's obviously a an NHL role player, brings some speed. But there was constant. I, I would say we would see it at least five times a week. For at sure. At least. Like in, in the dead part of summer. Not July 14th and that first week of free agency. Like, as recently as last week, people would text in, hey, what's going on with Mott? What's what's going on with Tyler Mott? Yeah. People, I think there was a desire to bring Tyler Mott back to Vancouver for Canucks fans. I understand why. The logistics and the reality of it probably don't link up. But nevertheless, 
he ends up in in Ottawa. And was this a misevaluation by Canucks fans? Was this Patrick Alvin reading the market perfectly and saying, "Hey, back in March, like we we gave you an offer, we felt it was competitive relative to the market, and look how it transpired." I think it's probably a little bit of both. And Patrick Alvin read the situation perfectly in a lot of ways. A, when you trade a player for a fourth round pick, kind of sense where the value is at. There was a thought of could this be the Blake Coleman or Barkley Goodrow mm-hmm. type of pickup? Maybe you can get something substantial for him. As we found out last year. That was not the case. I remember... Now, Barton Parcel, he got unlucky with injuries in Sure New York. he did. Yeah. But I remember last year as well, Frank Valley mentioning on Canucks Central, saying, yeah, the Canucks, maybe Vancouver values Tyler Mott differently than the rest of the NHL. And not the organization, but... The city of Vancouver. The city yeah. and the fan base and the media value Tyler Mott a different way. And this was a money contract for Tyler Mott, right? You play in Vancouver, you do a pretty good job at certain points, that fourth line, he was the engine of that fourth line. He showed his worth. Now, beyond that, goes to New York, doesn't score in the regular season, doesn't play many games. In the playoffs, scores two big goals. And with his age and with his, you know, kind of where he's at in his career, this and was... playing style, too. Playing style. Which is the thing that, I guess, endears himself to fans because mm-hmm. he does play hard, he does skate hard, you see the natural speed to his game, and the motor is constantly running. Yep. But there's ramifications to that, right? Like you're going you're going to have carnage on your body because sure. you play that way. And you're going to absorb a lot of punishment or you're going to initiate a lot of punishment sometimes mm-hmm. as well. And that does take a toll. But now, what did the NHL think? And as a as a player, as an agent, you're going to test the waters and say, "Hey, this is this is the money contra- contract for my my client and for me." Now, problem is, the rest of the NHL sees what's going on. There's other players that were available. There is an element of risk to this player as well based on that injury history. So I think Patrick Alvin read it perfectly. You come in with an offer that you think is fair last year, but the rest of the NHL clearly did not want to offer any term to a Tyler Mott. He got a one-year deal in Ottawa for a raise, but not a huge raise from his previous contract. And that's where you know a player plays hard, but you're not offering term to that player based on the fact that that resume, and more so that injury history, speaks for itself. We'll get into the auto aspect of this, because obviously they've been very active through the course of this offseason. But I wanted to focus more on you know, Patrick Alvin and this management group kind of going through this process to come to evaluation of a player and say, okay, we're comfortable doing this, we're not comfortable doing this. Because part of this team-building exercise when you're, when you're doing the roster construction Fans get angry and, and, and fans get attached to certain players. So like, oh, you had to give him this contract. A big moment for all GMs when, when they're deciding who to, to, to allocate the cap to, there is the conversations about how much is a player worth mm-hmm. and how much do we want to dedicate to and what are the values and the positives we're bringing from this type of transaction. But also a, a necessary step is to understand what someone's limit is and avoid missteps. They could have given Tyler Mott term. Yep. And I'm sure if, if you're the Mott camp, you probably wanted total money, three-plus million dollars over a three-, four-year contract. I imagine that's what he was looking for when he hit free agency. To avoid those missteps, to say, we're not going to lock up term. We're going to create an avenue where we're going to invest short-term in someone like Dakota Joshua and other players from the AHL can see, hey, this fourth line role isn't locked up for three years. 
So if you're down in the AHL, someone like Archdeep Baines can look at this and yep. say, hey, there is a pathway for me to get up in here. It's not locked in because they haven't committed to that. Is there something to be said about Alvin, you know, stepping over a potential, I don't want to even say landmine because it's not a bad contract for Tyler Mott, but just avoiding mistakes. Is is absence of error a positive here? I think it is. And anytime you are, you respect the role that a, a player like Tyler Mott plays, but there is a danger in signing two or three-year terms to that because we've talked about the, the merits to his game, the positives, but there's also negatives as well. Health, most importantly. Now, you talk about the ELC level players or the minimum salary players that could make that impact on a fourth line, but also Ilya Mikheyev is a part of this conversation. Yeah. When you're upgrading the PK, you paid a premium for a guy that you can see playing in the third, maybe even the second line, depending how it shakes out. So five on five, yes, you can have cheaper players fill that void, but on the PK, you've got one of the better penalty killers in the league and a goal-scoring threat who has a much higher ceiling to essentially say, we're willing to take less you know, in terms of we're taking maybe a bit of a chance on the fourth line, depending on what Dakota Joshua can be, but you're also paying a guy to play a PK role that should be amongst the best. So you are paying a premium. And even though, you know, to me, that's a question of ceiling. We know what Tyler Mott's ceiling was. Damn good player, bust his ass, but you weren't going to get much more scoring out of that. You invested that into Mikheyev, who should or who could give you 20 goals per season. Tyler Mott was not going to do that. Mikheyev's baseline should be Tyler Mott's ceiling. Ceiling, in theory. Now you're you're paying a huge premium for that. I understand that, and the the role they're going to play is also v- vastly different as well, as far as five on five usage. But as someone just texts in six fifty six fifty, Tyler Mott's upside is greater than Dickinson or Pearson. Hashtag thanks, Jim. Which is like the crux of this whole issue is for depth players. That's why you don't give three year deals because. You're paying them at the premium. Now, I understand it's just like, hey, what about McKayev? McKayev's also a unique personality yeah. for what they have, or at least a, a player type for what they have here, don't have here, as far as someone who brings speed. Jason Dickinson's not a burner. No. Tanner Pearson's not a burner. They bring value on the ice in their own separate ways, but there's a profile that just doesn't exist in Vancouver that McKayev does bring here. That Tyler Mont, again, is a speedy player, but it's not a natural speed that we're going to see from Ilya McKayev. On that text, though, Mott's upside is greater than Dickinson Pearson. Okay, Jason Dickinson, you know what I think about that. Yeah. I think that at 2.65 million, it's a tough contract, and everybody generally thinks that. You're, it's going to be hard to get value to that unless he has a great year on the wing. Tanner Pearson, guy puts up points when he's healthy. He does the dirty work. So I understand there's a lot of belief in Tyler Mott and what he can do, but one thing that he was not able to do consistently when he got the opportunity was play up the lineup. You may not like Tanner Pearson, but he can produce up the lineup. He can play on your third line, but if you need him in a pinch, he played with JT Miller and Brock Besser last year. And was year. not out of place at all. No, he was actually the guy that was doing the dirty work for them, and they put up points. So I understand the Tanner Pearson slander based on the contract, but the guy still produces. So if I'm talking about upside this year, Tanner Pearson has the biggest upside of all those three. So I disagree with that aspect of the text. 650-650, I'll pose it to you. Does the way this played out... Uh give you more confidence in uh, Patrick Alvine and the rest of this management group. Uh, you can chime in 650-650. Mott could have been buried even if it was for three years. But that's just the attachment to the player there, yeah. right? It's, it is is someone above Patrick Alvine. His ownership can be thrilled. It's like, really? We're bur- burying a guy for, for 
two more years at a million. I get it. It works for the cap and all that sort of stuff. But is that the type of investment you make? Because I look at this and I say, hey, they read the market perfectly. Is that what you want to see? Torgi also chimes in. Uh, can't have thir- 30 forwards. Our forward depth is fine. Love Mott, but you can't sign everyone. And you got to be okay with saying goodbye sometimes, right? A player that has played tough uh, hockey and he's had to to really punch above his weight. But now you have raised that floor. And it, there are going to be some casualties as a result of that. And when it comes to who knows what the demands were specifically at that time, but in that time and place, you're looking beyond saying, all right, if that doesn't fit for us, if that's not a deal that you can do, you got to upgrade. And it's hard to say that Vancouver Canucks have not done that. They've upgraded every aspect of this lineup, even on the bottom six where you're saying you don't want to spend that much money. And that's why Curtis Lazar at $1 million, Dakota Joshua on minimum salary as well. Makes sense. You're not spending that much money. Nate from Comox, 650-650. They locked up Lazar for three years, thus stopping someone from coming up to make your point. Uh, it's also a center right shot. in that scenario, a right shot center uh, that uh, literally doesn't exist for the Vancouver Canucks. So it's Tyler Mott as a winger versus Lazar as a center. It's a fair point of giving term to uh, depth players, but it's also a, a, another unique profile that doesn't really exist in the Canucks organization. We got this one here. Uh, you guys are stretching a bit. Think the book is still out on Alvin. See how he does over the next few years, Kevin from Calgary. Absolutely. But we're, we're looking for data points along the way at every transaction. And this was a, like, this was the quote-unquote big move at the deadline. Yeah. It was rather inactive for Patrick Alvin. And a lot of people said, that a lot of people wanted to retain Tyler Mott. And once again in the offseason, people wanted to bring back Tyler Mott. In a world of, we, we know you have limited cap space. You know you have limited cash. Where would you rather spend that? And I know there's going to be a lot of texts coming in saying, hey, Mikheyev, they spent money there. They're overspent on him potentially, but the ceiling is that much higher. You give him term because you believe in this player to, to elevate your PK, be a threat on the PK, potentially play ideally second line minutes if you can be that player, but you know you're going to get third line minutes from and on top of that, probably an elite penalty killer across the league. Tyler Mott, you don't, you're not willing to make that bet based on the fact that, hey, the ceiling is probably not there. And that's not a that's not a you know a criticism of his play, but it's the reality. And look at the deal he did end up getting from the Ottawa Senators. It's what other NHL GMs feel about him as well. If Vic, if he if he was that of a, a big of a commodity, he would have got a two-year deal. Why is it September 14th? September 14th, and yeah. he got a one-year deal. It's essentially another show me deal. Vic Nazar and Randeep Jandy can always chime in, of course, 650-650 into the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Uh, full show today. we got Andy McCullough uh, from the Athletic MLB going to join us in about 15 minutes. Danny Kelly in an hour and change uh, from the Ringer Fantasy Football Podcast and theringer.com. Of course, if you got uh, fantasy questions for Danny, you can text him in. We'll get to them at 2.30. And Irfan Gafar will join us as well at 3.30 as we get ready for the Canucks season. So Tyler Mott lands in Ottawa. The Sens have had a very, very busy offseason. Debrinkat, Giroux, Mott. Am I missing a name here? I think that's uh, it. Well, then they locked up a lot of guys to yeah. some big money deals. It, it, it's, yeah. Obviously, Norris, Stutzla as well. Are they the, the hype team? Now, it's, it feels weird for the Ottawa Senators to getting uh, hype in the offseason. But are they the hype team for this offseason? Yeah, the Ottawa Senators strike me as the New Jersey Devils from last year. Right. In the in the preseason, before the season begins, where they make acquisitions like the Devils did. 
Dougie Hamilton was a game changer. You know, they had some young players that were ready to take that step. Cam Talbot was the name I forgot. Cam Talbot, yeah. starting goaltender as well, is going to change that. But Ottawa is winning the offseason, especially when it comes to their forward group. If you look at that forward group, they got some skill. They got some grit. They got some depth. They've got a competition for the 1C spot as well, where Stutzel long-term is paid like that, but Josh Norris is paid pretty much the same amount. So you're essentially saying, all right, which one of you guys is going to establish yourself as the 1C? They're paying both of those guys. So I think they are the dark horse this year. What that means in terms of can they rival the top three in the Atlantic, that's going to be difficult. But in terms of preseason buzz, I think the Ottawa Senators are the it team. Defensively, they got some questions. Hamannick is still playing in their top four. You've got some issues on that right-hand side. But if you start looking at that left-hand side, it's kind of profiling like what? The Nashville Predators left-hand side. The Tampa Bay Lightning. Like, they're building that. They're not there, but you can see they're trying to build it that way. All right, so let me ask you, because you you mentioned, hey, they're the devils of this year. Mm Mm-hmm. Going in, like, that sounds positive because rewind a year ago. It's like, yeah, the Devils, they're so exciting. Preseason hype. But now we we have we have the benefit of hindsight in this scenario. Like, is that a good thing? You want to be the Devils of last year? Just because you win the offseason doesn't mean you win anything in the regular season. Yeah. Right? So there is a danger. To, and, and, and to your point, like, you mentioned the defense. Like, that's where my concern is. Cam Talbot, uh, I'll admit, like, man, that guy has stunned me in his own uh, career resurgence. And it at least provides similar to, guess what the Oilers are doing? Maybe a bit more stability. Maybe you lack the high end, but you get smoother overall goaltending play in net. But I do worry a great deal of what that back end looks like. It, it's headlined by Thomas Shabbat, obviously. But you kind of made this point. Yep. It's like from where he was from when he signed that deal to where he is now. And he's only 25, 26. Is his name still spoken with the same reverence from when he entered the league. Because now Adam Fox has skyrocketed. Kale McCarr jumps into the league and looks fantastic. Quinn Hughes, obviously. You, you go through a bunch of young D-men that have flourished recently. has become the new cheat code across the NHL now. Throw in Rasmus Dallin. Throw in a couple of other guys. Bowen Byron, Devontae's. Is his standing still the same? Or will we see a resurgent Thomas Shabbat with uh, infused talent? I have a lot of faith in his skill and his ceiling still. But here's the problem. And his athletic profile. No, he eats minutes unbelievably. eats minutes, but here's the problem with that. Everybody around him, usually his partner, is not to the same standard. And you don't have to be to the same standard. It's kind of that Quinn Hughes conversation we've had. Who's playing next to him? Does it have to profile the same way? But sometimes taking a little bit, a little bit of the puck from the player, just helping him out. The team was eating a lot of pressure over the years. This guy was seeing the puck a lot. And guess what happens when you see a puck, the puck a lot? You're going to make mistakes. And we saw maybe not the greatest of puck management from Thomas Shabbat over the last couple of years. But I still think he is a, a strong, very, very good young defenseman that's going to profile amongst the best in the league. The only issue I have with the Ottawa Senators is, in previous years, is absorbing a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. The defense was taking a lot of pressure on. Does that change now with their additions on the forward group? It should. Goaltending, can they get a save? Cam Talbot, when he does not have competition in the crease, is actually better. There's something about his game. When there's a goalie competition, Cam Talbot is kind of fragile in that regard. And this will be better because Anton Forsberg is his backup. I think we know who the number one is there. It's not like it's Minnesota. It's not like some of the previous destinations he's had. Remember, he was the number one at Edmonton. 
played 70 games that year, was lights out, was the MVP of that team if it wasn't for Connor McDavid. So I think Talbot makes that situation better for the defense. But as far as defense is concerned, yeah, they got upgrade. Shabbat can only do so much on his own. Raj texting in 650-650. Don't be negative, boys. Ottawa will be way better. They will be because they had 73 points last season. They're going to be better, obviously, with all the investment they've made. But when you make such an investment, you don't just say, hey, 84 points, that's all we need this year. Yeah, that's better. But when you sign Giroux, when you give Stutzla this deal, when you give Norris this deal, when you go trade what you did, even though it's a good deal for Debrinkat, you're going to have to also pony up $9 million at some point. You're getting ready to make big investments. That's going to come with heightened expectations, and it's closing that gap between the 100-point bar that was set in the East to where you are at 74. And what's the difference this year? There's expectation. There's actual excitement in that market for the first time in a number of years. There's expectation that they have players, they have committed. Players have committed to them. That's a big deal in Ottawa. And with that comes expectation. How do they deal with that? So nobody's expecting them to be a top three team in the Atlantic. But if there's one team that makes a move, is it them? Is it a team that you're high on in the long term, I think? The Buffalo Sabres, they're starting to change some of the the dynamic there. The Detroit Red Wings are another team that you look at to say Mm -hmm. strong young pieces, but now you've got Perron, you've got Kopp there, you've got Sherratt there, you've got Vili Husso in net. There's a few teams that have some level of expectation. Listen, they're all starting on parking level two here. The (laughs) elevator is only going up. It's not going any further down. They're all going up. But who goes the furthest? Well, there's a piece at sportsnet.ca that we'll get into uh, later on in the show. Uh, it's put penned by Justin Bourne. Our last season's top teams in the Atlantic Division at risk of falling. Now, we've had this conversation this week about the Central Division, but you can actually apply that across the league right now. Uh, we'll get into this at 2 o'clock, so you can text in 650-650. But is there a scenario where the high end of the NHL, will it be worse? Now, Florida and Colorado, they were flirting at 120-ish points. Will they dip down to 115, 112? And will the spread between the top teams and the middle of the pack lessen? That is rather interesting because the theme of the offseason to me was the best teams didn't really get better. And the, the, the lowest teams really did. Yeah. And so that middle class kind of stayed the same. Obviously, Vancouver's in that group as well. And the high end slightly regressed. But the bottom end of the group, and that's why that Eastern race is so interesting, because there's such a gap between eight seed Washington and the Islanders. It was 16 points, Randy. That's eight games. Yeah. That's a huge gap that the other eight Eastern teams have to close. We get caught up in the... Pacific Division 3 conversation and maybe wild card like we were yesterday. But I think there's a scenario that develops. We'll talk about it later. I think there's a scenario that develops that the gap between the first overall team and 19 is thinner than we realize. I'd agree with you. And I think you mentioned Washington there. Another team I'll throw into that mix is Pittsburgh because Mm -hmm. they had some changes as well. And did they get that much better? Did they get better? You start looking at some of those teams that were maybe on the fringes, on the outside, or even on the inside of the playoff discussion. 
I think there's going to be some some substantial drop-off here for some of these teams that we think are blue bloods of the NHL. A lot more on the way, including wrong answers only. We'll do that uh, at some point in the first hour. Andy McCullough from the Athletic MLB will join us on the other side. Your guy, Aaron Judge, can't stop hitting home runs uh, right now and closing in on 61. See that second one? I think it's still traveling outside no, of Boston. No, I haven't seen it because it's... It, it keeps going, it's, baby. It's not come down just yet. Uh, Bick Nazar, Randy Janda, back in a minute. Home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Show with Bick Nazar and Randeep Janda. Welcome back to the People Show. Bick Nazar, Randeep Janda, home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650, coming to you live from the Kintec studio. We'll connect with Andy McCullough, the athletic MLB. Just a moment. Randeep's just getting hyped. Aaron Judge, just homers every night. Just mashing. Just mashing. Just a regular Tuesday for Aaron Judge right now. And it's always extra pleasant when he hits home runs against the Boston Red Sox. In Fenway? Well, over Fenway. <laughs> Just smashing it over the green monster. Let's go. Salt in the wound. He just gets closer and closer. I know we, we spoke to Adnan last week, and he was talking about, hey, contextualize just where he is at right now versus Maris back when. And... This is slowly becoming a reality that 62 could be on the horizon here real fast. At 57 last night. And, he, like, to me, this is history. Yeah. I know we've gone through the Sosa, Maguire, Bond stuff. Now that we've learned a lot more, maybe we reflect back on that and say, okay, I understand that you, those markers were met. To me, 62 is still going to hold a very special place. Yeah, this story around Aaron Judge's home run chase is is a little different as well because it's, yes, you know, we have our thoughts on what the true record is. And to me, I've been pretty clear about it. I think MLB has a large role in this. Very complicit. It's so a part it, of their history, whether they like it or not. Yeah. But the fact that Aaron Judge is doing this now when the game is cleaner, that's a fact. On top of that, man's betting on himself. Mm-hmm. Like, he didn't get the respect from the organization that he saw. And he said, all right, I'm going to make my money, and I'm going to have the best season I can possibly have. And he's going to be a free agent after this year. I imagine he's probably surpassed even his imagination of what he thought he could do. He's in that zone right now. And a couple of years ago, you wondered, okay, what's Aaron Judge is a great player, but what's his ceiling? And when you have a rookie season like he did, it was, hey, great rookie year, but, like, is that the standard? He surpassed that. And that tells you something in a contract year as, as well, where the L.A. Dodgers are probably going to be sniffing around. The San Francisco Giants, the Yankees are going to try. There's even talk about the Red Sox getting involved in this. So there's a lot of conversation. It's historic, but it's also dramatic at the same time because it's not only will he do it, won't he do it. It's if he does it, where does he end up? And so, you know, if you're a baseball fan, I think there's an extra level of intrigue. It doesn't end with the regular season after 162. This is going to go into the offseason. Let's talk to Andy McCullough, who joins us now from the Athletic MLB. Uh, Andy, how are you? Hey, what's up, guys? How are we doing? Uh, we're doing fantastic. So this this Aaron Judge march, uh, it, it just kind of feels like it's going to be inevitable at this point, C- kind of like him at the plate right now. Hey, he's a good player, huh? He's, a <laughs> he's good, not bad. Uh, pretty good player. Yeah, I mean, it's what uh, you guys said it on the hit it on the nail on the head, as they say. I mean, he's uh, having a historic offensive season uh, at the best possible time for himself financially. So it's uh, it's really interesting. 
What do you think the Yankees do? Uh, is are they just going to back up the Brinks truck, or they they were kind of, you know, clearly weren't of the opinion earlier on this year, but now with what he's done, it has to change their perspective, does it not? Well, I mean, look, the Yankees made him uh, an offer that I think talking to folks around the game was considered exceedingly fair. You know, seven years, uh, two, I think it was two hundred and thirteen and a half million. Um, per year for a player with Aaron Judge's age, uh, you know, his history of injury is a perfectly reasonable offer. He's, you know, obviously going to get uh, a bit more now this winter. It's just a question of, like, how much more, you know? So it's like, is someone willing to go to eight years, to nine years, to ten years, you know? Um, I think the number 300 obviously has been uh, circled from the beginning as a target of his. He hasn't said that, but that's, you know, it's fairly clear, you know, that he's made clear that he wants to be paid in a way like Mickey Betts, like Bryce Harper, like Mike Trout, like the players that the, the league has marketed him, marketed him up with, you know, in the past five or six years. So um, I think the Yankees, obviously, they, they're, they're in a weird position in that when they want to sign a player, they have been willing to, you know, set financial records. I mean, the largest deal ever given out to a closer was from the Yankees for Rolvis Chapman, the largest free agent deal ever for a pitcher was from the Yankees to get a Cole. And at the same time, they have practiced sort of uh, fiscal restraint in sort of strange ways in recent years when they've stayed out of the market for players like Harper, like Manny Machado. Um, you know. And so I think it's going to be very interesting to see what other clubs are willing to offer Judge. You know, the San Francisco Giants obviously come to mind. Uh, you know, But I, I, I do think, you know, at least the perception in New York is that the Yankees are still the favorite, but a lot of things can happen in free agency. So it'll be fun to follow this winter. So there's the reporting side of this and say, hey, the Giants could be a contender of this. So there's obviously a bit of a connection there and other teams that have big money like the Dodgers. In your mind, just, just your opinion, like what is the chaos scenario you want to see? Because Randy was mentioning Boston. And I just look at that and say that is dripping with drama. And what a storyline that would be. Is there a chaos scenario that you look at and say, oh, I wish this happens? Uh, I mean, the funniest scenario would be the Mets, right? I mean, like, that's the that's the most amusing one because uh, it would set the city on fire, which would be very, very entertaining. I mean, look, and the Mets, like, certainly have the financial resources to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Steve Cohen uh, in, in charge. They have, um, you know, they have uh, they will have a vacancy in center field with Brandon Nimmo uh, departing in free agency. You know, they, they have all the money in the world. Uh, so that would be, that would by far be the, the most amusing scenario, yeah. Okay, staying in New York with the Mets, is the the chaos scenario kind of playing out for them as their lead now in the uh, NL East is dwindling? They've uh, won five of their last eleven. They're sub five hundred in that regard. Jacob Degrom puts you know pitches a great game yesterday, but they end up losing that. How worried should the Mets be right now with that NL East uh, discussion? Well, I mean, look, I, like it's it's tough to sort of frame it in a way that doesn't drive fans crazy, right? Because I think Mets fans saw how big their lead was in June and were like, hey, the division's in the bag. And I think if you look at this objectively, the Braves are as good, if not a better, baseball team. Like, they just started slower. And the Braves have run them down to the point where, you know, I believe it's a half game heading into today. They're both two very good teams. Uh, they're both going to be in the playoffs. They both have a chance to win the World Series. You know, the Mets have nothing to be ashamed of how they've played this year, obviously, they're in a bit of a rough patch right now, but they've had a great season, probably their best season since 2006. The problem with the Mets potentially losing the uh, National League East is that would force them to play in the wild card round. And the wild card round would mean that they would have to use Max Scherzer and Jacob DeGrom in those games, and those guys would not be available until games three and four 
of the next round when they would most likely be playing the Dodgers. And if they're going to beat the Dodgers in a short series, it would really behoove them to have DeGrom and Scherzer available as soon as possible. And that's just not going to be a reality if they have to play them in the wild card round. So while for a lot of teams, it's kind of like, hey, look, you know, we'll be in. We'll see what happens. It's not a huge deal. You know, it's not a huge deal, you know, for the Rays or the Blue Jays or whatever if they have to go through the wild card round, right? But like for the Mets, when so much of their ceiling is based on these two guys, it's a problem. You mentioned the Blue Jays there. Uh, they pull ahead into the wild card right now, half game up on the Rays. Uh, what do you make of the last? Last, uh, I don't know, three weeks, a month of the Blue Jays here, and Bo Bichette suddenly turns it up, and he's become the, the player a lot of people expected to see early on in the season. Uh, what do you make of uh, what's been going on with the Blue Jays? Yeah, I mean, I think that at various times this year, you know, they've had different guys in the lineup sort of get hot to have it. It hasn't clicked all at once, um, but, you know, there's still a bit of time for it to get together. And, like, offensively, there's not a ton of teams who are more intimidating than Blue Jays when they're going right. They've just been sort of muddling along a bit more this year. Still, obviously, you know, a productive club, still a good lineup. Uh, pitching has been a bit better. Uh, Ross Stripling has, you know, been pretty good for them. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think they are in a decent position. You know, they're, they're tough for them to miss the playoffs at this point as long as they continue to play decent baseball. And, you know, they'll be a difficult team to get out once the tournament starts. So you're talking about the Mets and how they maybe have to line up with their pitchers in the playoffs. When it comes to Alec Manoa and what he brings in a match, you know, in, in a game right now, where there's a few, you know, matchups in baseball that you're saying, all right, this guy is going to give us not a guaranteed win, but Jacob Degrom, if his team is playing well, it feels like you're pretty confident with him hitting the mound. Is Alec Manoa in that discussion, or is he on the is he on the cusp of that discussion of where? When we talk about an unhittable or potentially almost guaranteed win night, is he is he near that discussion for you? Uh, not really. I mean, he's having a nice season, mm-hmm. though. He's, he's pitching really well. I don't know. I have a more elevated uh, sort of standard for, you know, what makes a guy a number one starter. Look, Manoa's got all the tools. He's having a lot of success. It's more just, you know, doing it over and over and over, year after year after year. Right now, yeah, he's pitching really well. You feel good with him on the mound, but like, I wouldn't put him in a category with like a DeGrom or a Scherzer or a Verlander just yet. Is that the uh, difference between uh, a a number one starter and an ace kind of thing for you? Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, can you do it next year as well? And the year after that and the year after that, I mean, like, you know, Kershaw has been doing this for 15 years. Like, like his back obviously is a problem, but like his results are what they are. You know, he has a sub two and a half ERA every single year. You know, DeGrom, when he's on the mound, is, is as good as anyone. And, and Scherzer and Verlander are, you know, they're like annual Cy Young contenders, even as they enter their late 30s. So, um, yeah, I think it's just the consistency aspect. All right, staying on pitching, we've focused a lot on Aaron Judge and what his contract could look like, but Edwin Diaz is also a free agent this year, and there's buzz going on that this guy could be the first $100 million reliever. Are you buying that hype, or is that that one step too far? Uh, no, I mean, it's certainly possible, right? Like, I, I forget what Aroldis Chapman got. I think it was like 686. Um, for some reason, 106 is in my mind, but that could just be a, uh, you know, sort of a rounding error in my head. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's certainly possible that he'll contend with that. I think the problem with those deals is that most teams, as great as Evan Diaz has been this year, and like he at times looks like the best pitcher, you know, per batter in the world, as great as he's been, most clubs are going to be like, why are we paying that amount for a one inning reliever? Even, you know, in Diaz's case, sometimes he's a multi inning reliever. It's just not 
worth the money that can be allocated towards a center fielder, a starting pitcher, a starting you know catcher, whatever. Um, so I'm curious to see with, with relievers, it's always tough to figure out just how many teams are going to be in on the bidding. That's what drives up the price, obviously. Um, and so when it comes to Diaz, like a great player having a wonderful season, I just it's hard to gauge right now who's going to be throwing around that you know as John Middleton put it, stupid money uh, on a closer. Do you start looking ahead already to the offseason to say outside of Aaron Judge and, and guys that could get paid? Like, who, who are you looking at right now and say, oh, the, the, the secondary market outside the, the elites uh, are, are you focused on right now? Oh, I, I don't. I mean, I'm focused on playoffs, man. Fun. <laughs> I, I was curious. Like, I was curious. Enough. They're all rich. They're, you know, I don't know. I mean, like, uh, Xander Bogart's going to do well. Jacob DeGrom's going to do well. Uh, if Nolan Arenado opts out, which is kind of a – uh, you know, uh, an active question. He'll do well. Trey Turner's going to do well. Carlos Correa will probably get the multi-year deal he's looking for. Um, yeah, there's going to be a lot of good players, mostly shortstops available yet again, but that market was a little strange last year. Obviously, Correa taking effectively a one-year deal. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think Judge is going to be the big story. But DeGrom, like, you know, there's a good chance he'll beat what Max Scherzer got this past winter. Um yeah, I don't know. There'll be a lot of good players. It should be an interesting offseason. Well, we can focus on the play. I was talking to Andy McCullough from uh, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> the Athletic MLB uh, by McCullough on Twitter. Uh, just south of us here, the Seattle Mariners. Uh, it looks like this drought's finally going to come to a close. And uh, it, it, exciting because last year, uh, what they call it, fun ball uh, or uh, fun differential. And it, fun it was it was chaos yeah. ball for the Mariners. Uh-huh. This, like, is this a one-year blip in a team that just makes it in, or, or is this sustainable for the Mariners? It, it definitely feels more sustainable, and I think the fact that they took what last year was a team that had good results but probably not the best underlying statistics, and then they did not rest on their laurels but decided to try and build on it, you know, both, uh, you know, especially like adding uh, Luis Castillo at the deadline. I, I think that is encouraging. Obviously, Julio Rodriguez has been tremendous for them. Um, I, You know, look, are they ready to stand toe-to-toe with the Astros every year? Probably not, but it does feel like that this is less of a one-year blip and more of a sign of like, hey, this is going to be a good club for a good little while. They have a good farm system. They've done a good job acquiring talent. Um, you know, Ending the drought would obviously be nice for the wonderful people of Seattle, and so it's, it's, a, it's a nice story. Uh, well, we'll wrap up on this one because uh, I was kind of fascinated by the Mike Trout streak. And I, I know we're focusing on playoffs and uh, playoffs and the Angels don't exactly go hand in hand right now. <laughs> well, I, I'm always just so fascinated about Mike Trout because it always feels like he's okay being away out of the limelight. But also being out of the limelight means you're not going to the playoffs regularly uh, with the Angels. I, I'm just I can't imagine the MLB is overly thrilled about one of their shining stars uh, constantly not being in the center circle uh, come October. Yeah. I think that the league is just going to keep expanding the playoffs until they can get it to a point where Trout and Otani are in like, okay, what if we have a 20 team field? What if the 22 team field, like what do we have to do to get these two guys in a playoff game where we can make some money off this? Um, Yeah. I mean, it's uh it's not a great advertising for the sport. I mean, the continued sort of an aptitude of the angels is uh, kind of a remarkable thing to behold, but it also, you know, gives you a sense of the limitations of individual talent in a baseball team. And they have, you know, in Trout and Otani, they have two of the, you know, two singular talents and they're going to miss the playoffs yet again. 
this year. Um, you know, maybe there might be some hope for Angels fans and the hope that, you know, uh, Artie Moreno is, is willing to sell the team. New ownership would be welcome. Uh, maybe give, you know, GM Perry Manazian uh, some room to you know, sort of grow out the infrastructure that improves the farm system. Um, but, yeah, like it's kind of, you know, it's the same old story, right? Like Trout's incredible and he'll be, you know, golfing in October. He'll be home in Philly watching the birds, you know, um, which is not ideal for Major League Baseball. Just awesome. Like every night you see the, the, the home run alert. It's like Mike Trout. It's like, what? Yeah. Is this a repeat? Is this yesterday's notification coming up? And I, 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 you, you try to get excited for playoff baseball and you realize, oh, man, this guy's not there ever. It's, it's so frustrating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you think you're frustrated, you should ask the folks at, you know, the Park Avenue office, the commissioner's office. Like, they're, they're annoyed by it, too. Uh, hey, Andy, we really appreciate the time. Uh, enjoy the rest of the playoff race here, uh, and we'll connect soon. Sounds good. Have a good one. Andy McCullough from the Athletic MLB at by McCullough on Twitter. It's, it's like when Connor McDavid wasn't going to the uh, playoffs and it's, or, or out early. It's like, yeah. what are the Oilers doing? Come on. And then finally they make a run this year, and you, you saw the excitement for it to, to, to jump on board and say, wow, this is awesome to watch a guy take over a series against the Kings and against the Flames. Ultimately, it ends up losing to the Avs, but I'm sure MLB is dying to see Mike Trout in a playoff series. And you can allow it for like one year just to say, hey, man, it, it, was, it sucked that Mike Trout wasn't in the playoffs this year, but we know he'll be back. He's never in it. And from a team-building perspective... That stinks. You've got two of the most special talents. Before we used to talk about Mike Trout only and say, hey, this guy's an MVP, one of the greatest players we've seen. There are arguments, especially early on in his career, to be in that GOAT conversation. And now you add Shohei Otani to that. And they're still in that. It's a waste of talent. And unfortunately, it's also a bit of a, a dark spot or a, a blind spot in Major League Baseball. Like It's so dispiriting that to try team, to get behind it. Well, that team especially is always, in California, is overshadowed by the Dodgers. The Giants, when they're good, even when they're not good, they're still more relevant than the mm-hmm. Angels. And now with the buzz around the Padres, they get more pub than the Angels do, or at least comparable pu- uh, like buzz. So to me... Oh, I'd say there's more buzz around the Padres. But at the very least, right? Yeah. Like some of it's not good, Fernando Tatis Jr. But sure. still, nonetheless, they get more publicity than the Angels do. And that's a problem. That's a huge problem if you're Major League Baseball. To your point, the Padres are, I would say, a growing brand. that They're probably coming from a deeper spot to try to gain relevancy whereas the angels are static and stagnant and regressing yeah they're they're on the way down it's gotten to the point where i think people are just apathetic about what trout and otani are doing yeah that it's not worth tuning in for it and when we talked about it earlier on the season like otani look this is amazing again doing it all over again how much did that drive attention towards the angels right i it's so frustrating to for someone who enjoys watching greatness yeah and Otani and Trout right now, phenomenal. And I know there's injuries to deal with with Trout, but so we're just, we're just never going to see this player in the playoffs. <laughs> you know what? It's it's really sad that when the public understands that, oh, their talent's wasting away and we're going to stop paying attention to a certain degree, mm-hmm. that's sad. Because they're still great players, but you understand where that organization is. And, hey, man, they'll never figure it out. Like That's, that's not good. That's from a league perspective. You can't really do anything other than... You, you essentially, like, it's not the Philadelphia uh, 76ers. Remember when the leagues kind of stepped in and said, all right, you guys are tanking and we, like, enough. Where these guys are trying. They signed Anthony Rendon. 
the plan just like, sucks. They just they just strike out. I, I know you love like the legacy talk all the time. And for someone like Trout, are we gonna be able to contextualize what his legacy looks like if this continues for five, six, seven more years? And we like I think we all recognize the individual talent. Yeah. But greatness is made and etched in history in the playoffs. It's the Dan Marino conversation, and that's probably the conversation. But I think even worse. No, but hey, one of the, the greatest quarterbacks of all time, but did it matter because he didn't win a championship? And Mike Trout, up there as well, one of the greatest baseball players that we've probably ever seen, but if he ends his career without... It's even worse because he's not making the playoffs. Mm-hmm. At least with Marino, he you, got to you, the big game. He you was had in the, playoff appearances. Yes, he had playoff experiences, even when he was a little bit later on in his career. With Mike Trout... It's you don't you don't have anything in the prime, which is still going on. But yeah, Bick, if you don't make it at all, that's a problem, man. Bick Nazar and Randy Janda, a lot to get to uh, through the course of the show. Uh, keep sending your text six fifty six fifty as well. And I love when the questions come in. Uh, Brian and Nanaimo came in with this one. What is the toughest major league field to hit a home run in? And is there a much of a difference from the toughest to the easiest? So I looked this up while we we're talking to Andy. That was maybe why I was a little silent there for a couple of minutes. But the toughest park to hit a home run in Major League Baseball, based on ESPN's MLB park factors mm-hmm. as their measurement, is actually Chase Field in Cleveland. Okay. So the next tougher ones are Kauffman Stadium, Kansas City, Oakland, and Oracle Park in San Francisco. So if you're in judge, you're probably keeping that in mind. San Francisco, not the easiest park to hit a home run. Now, the easiest ones... I mean, Denver. Coors Field is number one. <laughs> Far and away. After that... You've got Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati. No free agents going there, based on the way they're playing this year. You've got the White Sox Stadium in Chicago, and Fenway Park, based on how many no, based on how many home runs are hit in 2022. That's that gives you a sense of if you're still still trying to pump up those numbers and be a home run hitter. Those are rookie numbers. You're probably not going to up. yeah. You're probably not going to Cleveland. You're probably not going to Kansas City. You're not going to o- Oakland. That's for sure. I don't think anybody's going to Oakland these days. But the Red Sox still carry some value because you can hit those home runs. Just imagining Oakland at the table and the Aaron Judge free agency offer. Be like, hey, we can give you $34 million a year? No, 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 no. Just, just, just total. Or here's the best. We'll give you $300 million, but you have to reinvest $150 million of that into the stadium that our, we want to build. Our entire team is just going to be you. You're going to play center field, left field, pitching, maybe even some shortstop. Yeah. Yeah. Just Good imagine luck. what that and, sales and this, looks like. And this ballpark is not suited for home runs. <laughs> On top of that. You just get to hang out in the bay, man. It's great. Unlimited seating as well in the stadium. <laughs> Pick any seat you want. Any family member you want in the stadium, they can be here. All your Twitter followers can show up in the stadium one day. Vic uh, Nazar and Radeep Jandy here on The People Show. Back in a bit. I'll get into the conversation that uh, we were talking about earlier. Will the high end of the NHL be worse this year? Also, Erling Holland doing it again in Champions League scored a ridiculous goal. I like what he scored while we were talking to Andy, and I almost yelped. That's how good it is. I saw <laughs> I saw the goal and the highlight come up on uh, Twitter while we were talking to Andy, and uh, it, it's it's phenomenal uh, playing against his uh, former club, and also uh, some other EPL news. Uh, Champions or sorry, not Champions. Uh, Chelsea's owner Todd Bowley making some news, uh, but an idea 
a North American idea to bring to English football. We'll get into it on the other side. Plus, Danny Kelly in the next hour. If you got fantasy questions for week two for your fantasy football lineups, uh, send them in, 650-650. Some players you're concerned about after week one. We'll get into it with Danny here on the Home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.